Hello, hello, and welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. Better Birth Podcast is brought to you by Anja Health. We are helping pregnant parents keep stem cells from their umbilical cord and placenta so they can use them later on in life in case any family member needs a stem cell treatment. My name is Catherine, and I am the founder of Angel Health. I founded it in memory of my younger brother, Andrew, who passed away but needed cord blood stem cells to treat his own cerebral palsy. So being able to save stem cells right at birth is something that is really important to me, and Angel Health is actually named after my brother, Andrew. So it is really special, and everything that we do is in memory of him, but also with the broader mission of making birth better for parents, including the experience of cord blood banking. So without further ado, do here is today's episode thank you so much for listening welcome back to the better birth podcast uh, i'm Catherine, the founder of angela health and today we are with anna lee reed who is a certified midwife based in new york city so super excited to have you thank you so much for being here yeah thank you for having me <laughs> awesome um well yeah would you like to give a bit of background on yourself and especially how you got involved in midwifery sure so I am a certified midwife, as you said. Um, I actually started midwifery as a certified professional midwife. So I went to school to become a certified professional midwife in 2014. Wow. Um, and on that journey, uh, so certified professional midwives kind of don't practice in hospital spaces mm -hmm. and um, the certification is different. The training is different. It's more focused on home practice. Mm -hmm. And when I finished in that program and moved back to New York, New York State was like, nope, we don't take that certification. Oh. <laughs> so I went back to midwifery school in 2017. And um, that's where I got my master's of science in midwifery at SUNY Downstate here in, Bro in Brooklyn in the city and uh, jumped right back into home birth, actually. So I primarily practice in home birth spaces and supporting women in, you know, their lifespan, really, from age 12 to 84. Um, but mostly in pregnancy, we were in the home birth space. So. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, what is your favorite part of being a midwife? Oh, man. <laughs> There's so many things. I But I've learned that as I've gotten older, the education has been always like my favorite thing. My mother is an educator and I come from a family of educators. My grandfather was an educator. And so I guess that kind of fell into my pathway as well. And so for me, the teaching moments that I have as a midwife in the transformations of the pregnancy journey and just as women are and families are expanding and they're trying new things and considering trying new things and just, you know, opening their eyes to how to eat better, live better, mm -hmm. you know, addressing emotional needs and all of that. Like that is hands down my favorite part of midwifery. Yeah, that's awesome. That's super yeah. cool. Um, yeah, it's definitely really empowering that you're a part of the educational system related to women's health because I feel like normally people feel so lost and confused mm -hmm. and are just sifting through Reddit when it comes to any type of healthcare in general, but especially women's health. So yeah, yeah that's super awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, today I'm super excited to chat with you about nutrition during pregnancy and postpartum as well, mm -hmm. um, and then potentially sex during pregnancy too. Um, but first, would love to get some thoughts on cord blood banking as we are doing cord blood banking at Angel Health. Mm -hmm. um, so as a midwife, what are the pros and cons to cord blood banking for you? Brief interruption for our podcast listeners, and then we'll get right back to it. If you're currently pregnant, then this is important for you to know. So when I was three and my brother was one, he was in a near drowning accident that gave him cerebral palsy. One treatment for cerebral palsy is giving children stem cells from their own umbilical cord. The umbilical cord and placenta are both super rich with stem cells that can be used to replace and repair damaged cells. And when they come from the baby, they're a perfect match for that baby. However, my family didn't save stem cells for my brother and we couldn't find a match when the time came. It's pretty difficult to find a cord blood stem cell match if you're a person of color or mixed race. So the best solution to this problem is to save stem cells right at birth. You can do this with Angel Health. 
We have a kit that you can bring with you to birth and it contains all of the tools that your provider needs to collect your umbilical cord and placenta. After birth, you can place a pickup in our parent portal and we'll come and pick it up from anywhere in the United States and bring it to our lab in New Jersey where it will be frozen in the same way that you can freeze eggs or sperm. Then your family will always have access to stem cells for future disease treatment. Stem cells have been used to treat type 1 diabetes, different types of cancers, heart disease, liver disease, multiple sclerosis, and more. Get your kit today with Anja Health by going to anjahealth.com. That's A-N-J-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. You can always text or call us with questions as well at 310-620-1663. And yes, it is always a real person. And now back to the episode. So... To me, there are no – the only con for corpo blinking is the expense. Mm-hmm. Um, my background before becoming a midwife is that I, work, I was a medical laboratory sciences. So I have a background in transfusion medicine. I have a background in um, immunology and clinical awesome. chemistry. So I do understand there is many pros and how – the cells in the cord, the, you know, those stem cells that are present can be supportive of um, either that child or a relative or, you know, the only con is the costs associated, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, I have had some families that are like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, you tell me. <laughs> yeah, that was as far as it goes, really. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever done cord blood banking yourself, especially at a home birth? Yeah. So ultimately, no, I haven't. Well, in a hospital once, we did a, we did collect some cord blood for a patient. But in home birth, again, like when people do their research, and I'm supportive of it for sure. I'm like, this is where you, you know, you can look, you find the kit, you got the kit shipped to us and we'll collect it. Um, but then when they find out like the storage part, that's typically um, when they're like, well, we're already paying for this expensive birth. Mm. Um, and maybe for some it's not as expensive, you know, it depends on the insurance. But even those that aren't paying that much for the birth probably aren't paying that much because they don't have money to pay for a corporate right. banking. So, you know. Um, I haven't actually seen it through for cord blood specimen to date. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's okay. Um, well, yeah, I think it's interesting to get just a lot of exposure to different types of birth stories. Um, and yeah, just different opinions on cord blood banking in the U S only 2% of parents do cord blood banking, but it's actually a legal mandate in 31 states that at least parents know about it as an option. So I think for us, um, we're just trying to get it to be really at the forefront of thought where at least people know about it. Cause typically we get so many comments online that are along the lines of like, OMG, I gave birth four days ago. Literally no one told me about this. I had no mm-hmm. idea there were even mm-hmm. stem cells mm-hmm. in the umbilical cord and placenta and it's just thrown away. So um, yeah, I still think it's important to talk about nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, cool. Well, have you ever done delayed cord clamping and cord blood banking? I guess you said you you only did cord blood banking once, but um, typically we have parents that delay cord clamping anywhere from like not at all to up to two minutes and then bank the rest. Or if they do more, they can bank the cord tissue and placenta. So um, yeah, how have you seen delayed cord clamping and cord blood banking interact if you have? Yeah. So that was interesting to me when I was like reading about it um, just the other day um, that you could just use the placenta. I actually didn't know that. (laughs) So by default, yes, most of my clients, we are doing delayed cord clamping for not two two minutes, not 30 minutes, Mm. but almost like a full hour. Okay. Yeah. So just because like I let them have the first hour uninterrupted and so it ends up being the hour and then we you know cut the cord there's very rare moments that we're cutting earlier than that yeah yeah and so it's good to know that we can just still do the delayed cord clamping and then like get the placenta and the cord tissue for um storage if they want that yeah definitely um what are the benefits to delayed cord clamping in your eyes So the benefits for delayed cord clamping include um, completing the perfusion, like transfusion of all of baby's blood. Mm -hmm. So we know that there are 
blood left, you know, and cells that are in the cord once baby leaves the womb and they're, you know, transitioning earthside, they're breathing and their lungs are, you know, doing this thing, but they're still blood pumping through that placenta. So Mm -hmm. um, even though it's like to us a couple of drops to a little tiny human being, it's a lot, you know. Um, I've seen babies that, or I should say, I've had moms compare their babies that have that hour of delayed cord cramping with me to their siblings that were born in a Mm -hmm. hospital space where they're just like a minute or no delayed cord clamping. And they're like, yeah, this kid was pale. This kid is nice and (laughs) rosy. And like, you know, they're like, it just looks so much better. Yeah. Um, And so you can definitely tell the difference between a babe that has gotten more of their blood volume through Mm -hmm. the delayed cord clamping and ones that like immediately after birth, the cord was cut. Awesome. Um, And for babies that might have medical procedures later in their life that might have been born with a heart condition or something like it's definitely beneficial for them as well to be able to have that extra blood for um, also regulating temperature and yeah, things like that. So, right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, cool. Well, yeah, one of my last question on cord blood banking is related to this article that UC Davis recently published. So especially with your background in immunology and transfusions, um, would love to get your initial reactions to this. So basically they use stem cells from the placenta, um, in order to help treat spina bifida. So, um, this physician said that it was sort of like magic stem cell Mm -hmm. juice, um, in addition to protecting the spinal cord, it was able to reverse some of the damage that had been done. Um, and so, yeah, this just goes to show, like we were talking about earlier, that you do a lot of delayed cord clamping pretty to a pretty extended amount. Um, so, yeah, we um, still really want to emphasize the importance of placenta stem cells as well that parents can bank as an option. Um, so, yeah, with your background, what are your initial thoughts on placenta stem cells um, and the study? Yeah, um, like I said, it makes sense. It makes sense that, yes, we've got the, like, the cells that are in the blood itself that we see coursing through the cord, but we know that the placenta carries has been carrying life in and of itself as well. And um, we know that the placenta is used for other things, other research. Um, some people, have, there's placenta products in your hair solutions <laughs> and in cosmetic products that we probably didn't know about. Um, but it makes sense that there are also like those stem cells that are useful for treatment of, in this case, spina bifida. Um I would love to see like live what that looks like in lab, I guess, in vitro, what, you know, what they recorded of how it's supportive of um, healing spina bifida, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Cool. Do you have any questions for me related to cord blood banking? What would you recommend in terms of turnaround time for ordering things and like the family getting clarity about the process and what's your process at Angel Health? You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we typically recommend that parents try to make a decision on cord blood banking by around 30 weeks. Um, and then if they order at that time, then we'll send it to their home. We'll send a kit to their home right away. Um, if they have get exposed to our content before, I recommend just doing it and we don't send the kit in that case until 30 weeks. Um, so yeah, we try to just make sure that parents don't forget and they enroll as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. And if we haven't sent the kit yet, then they can always, um, unenroll with us and we will refund them if the kit hasn't been sent to their home. Um, and yeah, if they enroll with us after 30 weeks, then we can get a kit to them right away pretty much, especially if they're later in uh, their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Like we once had a mom, I think the latest we've done was she was four centimeters dilated. Um, Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So we have emergency kits stored throughout the United States. So in the case that parents decide super last minute that they want to bank cord blood, core tissue, or placenta stem cells with us, then we can make that work for sure. Um, And yeah, basically they can 
to take the kit with them to birth. Um, we've supported some home births as well um, yes. and hospital and birth center births too. So yeah, we're available for trainings for midwives if they don't feel comfortable collecting. But typically we have instructions inside and they see it as pretty easy. Like you just um, stick the cord blood bag into the umbilical cord vein um, if you're collecting cord blood and then you can cut off um, a little over six to 10 inches around there of the cord tissue and then mm -hmm. the placenta and place them in jars. Mm -hmm. And then you can call us for pickup and a courier will come to wherever you are, even a home, mm -hmm. um, and bring it to our lab based in New Jersey, which is where we process and freeze the stem cells for parents to use for future disease treatment. Okay. Have you ever seen like poorly collected yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have seen poorly collected cord blood specimens. Um, in those cases, we don't charge parents for mm, okay. the cord blood, of course. Um, so yeah, we do try to meet with them right after they purchase. We try to meet with parents right after they purchase because mm. um, we want to make sure that the specimens can be collected properly. So that's why we have, for instance, our rule around delayed cord clamping only being two minutes because then otherwise the cord blood sample might be too low. Mm -hmm. We also tried to urge parents to remind their provider to milk the cord. Um, and even if they do longer than two minutes, like slightly over, if they're milking the cord, then they can potentially get enough cord blood. So we try to do 40 milliliters um, at least. We can store a little bit less, but um, yeah, we typically try to get like a good amount of it. So 40 um, and yeah, we haven't had too many issues collecting the cord tissue and placenta, especially since the placenta is so large, yeah. we're able to collect stem cells from it, yeah. um, anyhow. So yeah, it's mainly just making sure that there's enough cord blood and that there's like real attention to milking the cord mm. and getting enough cord blood volume. Got you. Cool. Okay. Any other questions? No, I think that's it. <laughs> cool. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm super excited to chat with you about nutrition. You mentioned that you're really passionate as a midwife about nutrition during pregnancy. And I know a lot of parents are really interested in like what they can and can't eat. I feel like there's so many rumors around like caffeine, seafood, things like that. Um, so yeah, what are your main tips if you had to pick three for maintaining proper nutrition during pregnancy from your perspective as a midwife? Okay, three. <laughs> um, first of all, acknowledging that nutrition is like the building block of mm. a, a healthy pregnancy, a healthy labor and postpartum period. Um, and that when you provide the appropriate nutritive substances to your body, you're protecting your body from conditions like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, um, high blood pressure. But you have to do the groundwork before you get there, mm -hmm. not like troubleshooting it after. That doesn't, it's not as easy once you get there. Um, so I always say, you know, your plate should be half. Fruits, vegetables, whatever, whichever version of that you're having, whether it's morning or evening. Um, and then a quarter of it would be carbs and then a quarter of protein. Um, but also, I guess that's my third one <laughs> yeah. already. Um, protein. Protein is really important. Protein is the building block of the cell. And in pregnancy, your baby needs to make cells and those cells need to actually grow. So once the cell is made, then it also has to expand. Like there are mm -hmm. two, you know, developmental parts of cell growth. Um, and protein is the building block of the cell. So making sure that you're having good quality protein in each of your meals is important. Right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I've been trying to lift a lot recently, so I've been increasing oh, nice. my protein intake. <laughs> <laughs> and also protein, um, good protein intake not only helps baby, but it also helps your liver not have to work as hard. Mm. Um, the liver does so much work in pregnancy. It helps push out hormones. It's creating protein. If you don't get enough protein in your diet, your liver has to do that work. Mm. And when we have a taxed liver, then we have conditions in pregnancy mm. that we don't want to have. So Right. What kind of conditions you typically see? So back at the preeclampsia, we've got fatty liver of pregnancy. Mm. We've got HELP syndrome. Right. Um, those kinds of things where your liver is like struggling. Right, right. Mm. Okay, good to know. 
Um, what kind of snacks do you think keep you full during pregnancy? I feel like I see a lot of content along the lines of like, um, overeating during pregnancy, especially after you get past nausea. Um, so yeah, what recommendations do you have, especially thinking about protein intake and things like that, that you think will help keep you full? Yeah. Don't eat empty calories. That's like, <laughs> yeah, because if we, oh, we're we snacking just to have something in our mouth because our body is signaling us like, hey, maybe we need some energy because we're doing a lot of work down here. And then we're eating chips or popcorn. Mm -hmm. That's not going to sustain you for long. So then you're like, I need more, but you're getting all this fat and unnecessary calories that aren't doing much for you. So Back to the protein. <laughs> um, Protein-based snacks like mm, trail mix, uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Some people live off of boiled eggs in their pregnancy because mm -hmm. that's kind of all they can really get down. And it helps with right. nausea and vomiting. Back high in, in the day. Huh? High in choline. And high in choline. Exactly. <laughs> Good for baby. Um so they used to say, like, take some crackers and ginger ale, but that's not actually <laughs> – that's proven not to actually help with nausea and vomiting. It's actually a protein. So if you got to do a boiled egg, just cook a bunch in the, you know, early part of the day and pop them whenever. Um, protein smoothies. Mm. Um, hummus and vegetables because we're getting raw vegetables and we're getting protein. Um, what else? Then you have like, you know, tuna sandwiches or like a tuna dip or things right. like that. Um, but there's lots of non-meat options for protein and then meat options as well if you're, you know, a meat eater. Yeah. Do you yeah. recommend that pregnant parents take protein powder? I mean, I don't recommend it. My preference is to get it from a food source. Yeah. But if you are struggling with like, you know, meal prepping or just being able to have it you know, close by, then yes, that's definitely on the list mm. of, okay, well then if not this, then this is a great option. Yeah. If someone is pregnant and vegan or vegetarian, how do you help them get enough protein? Yeah. So then with the vegan vegetarians, we do the hummus, the peanut butter, the, um, the nuts, if they don't have nut allergies, but if they do have nut allergies, then we have to like do more um, beans mm -hmm. and um, protein of that nature. And then also whole grains. Complex grains have protein in them. Like right. oatmeal, um, quinoa, those kinds of grains. So then they'll do more oatmeals in the morning. They'll put oatmeal in their smoothies or they'll have like find some kind of um, vegan protein powder that they are you know, that works well. Flaxseed, chia seeds, those things have protein in them as well. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've been eating the Jennifer Aniston salad. Have you been seeing that on TikTok? You know, actually, <laughs> I remember that like a while ago. I didn't really like cue into it. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's um, chickpeas, quinoa, mint, yeah. lemon, olive oil, pepper, and um, goat cheese is not vegan, but mm -hmm. they're like other substitutes. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, it's super high in protein and quinoa has all of the essential amino yes, acids. So yes. I've been eating the Jennifer Aniston salad probably three times a week for like four months. Amazing. <laughs> that sounds like a delicious salad. And it fills you and keeps you yeah. well, right? Yeah, I eat it at exactly. like 10.30 usually. And then I don't have to eat again until like six. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it works. Um, awesome. Well, if you could list five main foods that you should try to eat during pregnancy that have, for instance, a lot of choline or anything like that that might be essential during pregnancy, what would those main foods be? So if you're a meat eater, I I tend to recommend like the fatty fishes more, like mm -hmm. salmon. Eggs are, like I said, like a real go-to and supportive of a lot of things in pregnancy and then raw fruits and vegetables a variety of them different colors so the leafy greens are good for iron because mm -hmm. that is something that in pregnancy we want to like stay on top of is making sure that we don't have pregnancy of anemia or anemia of pregnancy excuse me um, and that's a thing because at a certain point in the pregnancy our bodies blood volume literally increases so our right. body's like let me make more blood to get 
to where, you know, it needs to go to this growing fetus. And the plasma portion of the blood is what increases, not the red blood cells. So if like we've got a cup of my matcha here, <laughs> if this bottom portion was the red blood cells and then there was this much plasma in it before, like in the 16 week period, mm -hmm. by 24, 28 weeks about there'll be this much plasma, but mm. the same amount of red blood cells. So it's like what we call hemodilution and that hemodilution is symptomatic anemia. So right. we've got like, that's when it's like, oh, I'm so short. Like I have a hard time breathing even when I'm just like sitting down or I'm yeah. super, super, super tired all of a sudden again. Um, and that's because of anemia of pregnancy. I'm chewing on ice chips. I've got mm. cravings to eat or whatever. <laughs> Those are pika, right? Those yeah. are things that pop up in pregnancy. So if we're eating our dark leafy greens, um, foods that are rich in iron, then we can help to avoid that. And those symptoms kind of drag down a pregnancy, right? Because if mom's not feeling like she's got good energy, then everything feels like a really difficult task. Yeah. And we don't want that. So um, getting in your dark leafy greens, iron-rich food, um, fatty fish and eggs, lots of protein, and then also the fruits are important too. The vitamin C fruits. A lot of women crave oranges and things like that in pregnancy mm -hmm. because their body's like, give me that vitamin C. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we listen, we give our body what it needs to absorb, help our body absorb the iron that it needs yeah. also for that. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So during pregnancy, I know a lot of people talk about eating for two and things like that. To what extent should someone mm -hmm. e eat more than they're normally used to eating? So it really shouldn't feel like eating for tutu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it other than you need to eat according to your um, what your body's telling you, not just mm -hmm. because I can. Because yeah. um, it's based on your calorie need, your caloric needs. So for someone that is uh, works a sedentary job, sits at a desk for most of the day, drives their car home, and isn't going to the gym, unlike what their midwife told them to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't need to really increase their calories that much more. Like, you know, there will be parts of the pregnancy that they'll probably need to snack in between meals for sure, but generally not necessarily. Other people that are like on their bikes, going to the gym three times a week, running after smaller children or, you know, walking to the train for like, you know, 15 minutes each way, mm -hmm. they will need more calories because their body is literally doing a thing inside, burning calories, making yeah. a life. And then they're also using calories as a human. Um, so, but it's like 2,500 versus the 2,000 that is the, you know, what's the FDA approved amount of calories, yeah. a typical amount of calories for most people. It's not that much more. And 500 <laughs> calories is what? Like maybe two cookies? Yeah. <laughs> it's not that much more. Yeah. Um, I also do say that if you feel like you are being fueled well by what you're taking in, then you're doing a good job. Right. So there are some people that will be like, you know, I mean, I eat what I need to eat, but I'm not really eating more than the three meals a day that I usually eat. Baby's been growing well, according to whenever they come in for their assessments. And so my question to them is like, are you feeling like your food is, food is fueling your body for the day? And if mm -hmm. the answer is yes, then you're doing a great job. Right. Okay, awesome. Thinking about your iron recommendation, if pregnant parents feel really out of breath during the day, does eating leafy greens help boost that iron supply and then help that and help them feel less out of breath? It should. It's not instantaneous. Yeah. Um, but once iron is actually does get stored in the body. So if you are low in iron and you have iron deficiency anemia, mm. Once you've built up that reserve back, you should be good for like a while, especially because you're going to keep up the good habits yeah. and you're going to keep, right? Um, yeah, it's not instantaneous, but like it, if I've seen like good results even for three to four days. Oh, awesome. If you're really like leafy Eating greens, beets, you yeah. know, iron rich food, um, it can help 
pretty quickly. Okay. That's a good mm-hmm. recommendation. How do you think pregnant parents should best plan their pregnancy nutrition? Like should they meet with a nutritionist or do you have go-to guides that pregnant parents should take a look at? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in my practice, we do diet diaries together uh, at least every trimester. Okay, cool. So my clients get that one-on-one time with me and we go over and we review. If you don't have a practitioner that's doing that, then I would recommend mm-hmm. working with a nutritionist. Just check in, like, you know, a couple of times in the pregnancy, definitely at the beginning, because again, you want to make sure you're planning out to have a good foundation mm-hmm. for the, before things start coming up, <laughs> right? Um If your provider is like only seeing you for 10, 15 minutes, just checking the baby real quick and you do labs elsewhere and you do an ultrasound elsewhere, yeah, go to see a nutritionist. It will really, really, really be beneficial for you. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we've seen, we previously had a a nutritionist on our podcast and she specializes in nutrition for folks with gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you think folks should plan nutrition if if they're pregnant and don't want gestational diabetes or might have a risk for it, how yeah. do you think they should plan around that? Um, so gestational diabetes is pretty specific to how our body is processing sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, for clients of mine that have had gestational diabetes pop up on the radar, we do then escalate to a nutritionist for additional follow-up than myself. Um, But my counsel will typically be staying away from processed sugar, refined Mm -hmm. sugars, um, eating more complex carbs rather than the simple carbs. So like staying away from the white bread, the white rice. But if you have the brown rices and the quinoas that your body needs to break down more. They're, they have a lower uh, glycemic index. Mm-hmm. And there are certain breads that you can get that have lower glycemic indexes. And you can't eat croissants every day anymore. <laughs> um, and not drinking coffee with like milk and cream every morning as much. But um, definitely lowering that glycemic index um, from your, your carb intakes and also, cueing into the fact that um, I always believe that your sugar cravings are often you actually needing protein. Because mm. your body knows that when you take in sugar, it gives you like this quick boost of calories. Like, right. I need energy. Let me get something sweet because it's going to give me like shoot up my calorie and uh, energy for that moment. Mm-hmm. But really, if you were to take in some protein, that's more long lasting energy and it's more nutritive energy, then you would also solve that problem. So cueing into like, okay, I'm getting sugar cravings. Is it that I really need to have this Kit Kat or have I not <laughs> eaten in like a couple hours? Right, right. You know? Yeah. And what did I eat a couple hours ago? Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on muscle milk or things that are protein, but Mm. like kind of pseudo sugar. Like I've been having a lot of muscle milk since I've been lifting, but Uh it uh feels not that great sometimes. What does it feel like? What do you... Um, I don't know. Like a few days ago, I I had a lifting session for probably 40 minutes. And then, yeah, I had a, a chocolate muscle milk after. Mm-hmm. And I and I went to sleep like soon after. Um, like I worked out at about 8, went to bed at 10. And then, yeah, but when I woke up the next morning, I felt so bad and low energy. Mm-hmm. And I wear an aura ring, so I can usually track my Got sleep. And my, I got enough REM and deep sleep, but I just didn't feel well rested, which was really strange. Like usually my REM or deep sleep is kind of off if I'm, uh, if I'm feeling not well rested. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was wondering if it was because of the muscle milk. So I've been thinking more about like pseudo protein additives. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that I'm not like a, a fan of the, yeah. the pseudo protein situation. <laughs> um. I don't really know, though, how much it affects, like, sugar levels, for Mm -hmm. instance, because we – I mean, anything that's been created in a lab has removed the things that were made with it to help your body process it. Mm. Like, I actually don't believe in egg whites. I believe Mm. that you should have the white part and the yolk part because your body needs the fat from the yolk to process the – so – I don't believe in 2% milk because I feel like you need, like 
everything that's made a certain way is made that way for a reason. That's my yeah. belief. So these protein powders that are made that way, I feel like, yeah, they're not necessarily the greatest version. Um, why it caused you to have an unrest? I'm not sure. Yeah. Something to I feel like it into. might be the sugar. Like there's a lot of – it's supposed to be like zero grams of sugar, mm -hmm. but there's like all these like – Oses in them. <laughs> so Some I don't know. Of sugar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah. If you Google nutrition pregnancy, one of the top questions is what happens if you don't eat healthy during pregnancy? Mm. I think so many pregnant parents don't know that they're not eating the best, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, wonder about the consequences. So, what are the consequences in your eyes if a pregnant parent doesn't eat healthy? Oh, man, there's so many things. And that's why I really heavily lean on nutrition as, as the foundation. To start out, I think the first thing in most people's mind is like the baby, right? <laughs> like what's going to happen to the baby if I don't eat well? Mm -hmm. Most of the times, well, okay, in the beginning portion of the pregnancy when organogenesis is happening, which means like the baby cells are differentiating which which version of their, you know, which part of the body it wants to focus on. Like, do I want to be a liver? Do I want to be a heart? Do I want to be bone cells? Um, and then the spine forms and all of that. That's like mm. the first eight to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. In that time period, um, there's two schools of thoughts. One is like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So like, if you know that you're pregnant and you eat as well as, you know, and take your DHAs and all of that and prenatal vitamins, then great. And if you have it, whatever was going to happen was going to happen anyways. And then others are like, yeah, definitely have started your prenatal vitamins right away or even before, you know, preconception have, you know, been eating well and all of that. Um, but mostly after that period, baby's going to take whatever they need from you. Some people refer to, you know, fetuses as parasites because they kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> they are like, let me take what I need. And mom or the birthing person is the one that gets drained. Mm -hmm. So you get depleted of calcium. You get depleted of iron. You get depleted of vitamin C because baby's going to take what they need for mm -hmm. growing. Um it makes me think of Renesmee and Twilight. <laughs> have you seen Twilight? I have. It's been way too long. <laughs> Remind me. Like... Um, when Bella in Twilight has a baby, uh -huh. she like gets really, really skinny because the baby's basically oh, taking yeah, her blood. Like, parasite. Yeah, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Literally. <laughs> um, so it's not so much baby, but more so the well-being of the birthing person. Mm -hmm. Um in that way. Then when you consider like um, making sure that your your liver has a good foundation and doesn't have to work super, super hard because if you work it super, super hard, it might then be taxed too much and lead to conditions that we already talked about. Right. Your kidney also has to do a lot of work in processing all the things that you eat and all the stuff that baby's, you know, pushing out as well. And so... You can also overtax your kidneys and then we've got protein spilling out of the kidneys into mm. the urine and then that's like one of the signs of preeclampsia, for instance. Um, and so if you're not eating well in the beginning part of the pregnancy, yes, maybe it will affect baby's cell development. If you're not eating well after that period, it's mostly how it affects the birthing person's body and how mm -hmm. you're going to manage the pregnancy and if conditions will come up for you, mm. not necessarily baby. Right. Um, so what will happen? You might be too tired to deal with your toddlers. You might not be able to continue going to work. You might be short of breath, you know, walking or just sitting down and feel like you can't really go through your day. You might become irritable with your family members <laughs> or your partner. Um, you might develop high blood pressure. And high blood pressure, that can be life-threatening if, mm -hmm. you know, you're in labor and your, high, your blood pressure is so high that your heart is like, mm, can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, Preeclampsia is also a life-threatening condition that can develop if your liver is too taxed and your kidneys and you don't have proper protein um, and blood volume expansion in your preg during the pregnancy. Um, 
So a host of things yeah. can happen, um, but mostly it's specific to mom and not baby. Mm. I know that's like what people mostly fear is yeah. that like I'm going to do something wrong to baby. I mean, fetal alcohol syndrome is a thing. That's mm-hmm. something like that's totally different. That's alcohol consumption uh, at certain levels in the pregnancy. But right. food-wise, it's mostly taxes mom's body. Right. Okay, interesting. Um, can not eating enough affect your pregnancy? Especially, I think that's a concern for people that experience a lot of nausea in the early stages. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so again, back to the protein, right? <laughs> Building blocks of the cell. Not eating enough eventually can affect the growth of baby. And then we see that that can um, lead to... Um, what's called IUGR, intrauterine growth retardation or fetal growth restriction is what Mm -hmm. we call it now. Um, And then baby's just not growing like appropriately. And then at that point, we may recommend to induce labor uh, by term so that we can get baby out and get them what they need sooner Mm -hmm. rather than later. But that means that your baby doesn't get to cook in you as long as they should, which is more beneficial than... um, having a 37 week a, a term induction so that is a risk of not you know your baby not growing developing appropriately the placenta also needs to continue to work as a functioning organ so not eating um well or developing gestational diabetes we found can also affect the placenta because there are these spiral arteries in the placenta mm-hmm that somehow get affected with the insulin rush of when diabetes happens. Somehow those arteries get affected and that the arteries constrict and then parts of the placenta don't function the way they should for baby or, you know, something to that effect. And so poor eating can also affect the perfusion of baby from their placenta. Mm. So that's a thing. And then I said gestational diabetes, that can also happen, right? Right. And the that means that your baby can potentially grow larger than they should in the womb. The baby can, this is something that would affect baby long term, possibly, is that baby can be born with a form of diabetes mm. and or develop diabetes. Well, they would be born with possibly low blood sugar because they're so used to having like that excessive amount of sugar in the womb. Then when they come out and they're separated from their placenta and from their source, mom, who was giving them all this sugar, all of a sudden their sugar drops and then we've got mm. like a hypoglycemic baby. Right. Um, and they can also develop diabetes long-term in the future if they are born in a... If they live in a hyperglycemic um, environment in the womb, so yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I read about how gestational diabetes isn't necessarily predictable per se, because, like for instance, it could be in one pregnancy but then not the next. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, how how does gestational diabetes generally come about, and what can parents do to prevent it from happening? Lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, mainly the nutrition. Yeah, nutrition. There's uh, families that come to me and they're like, you know, I had gestational diabetes in the last pregnancy and they said that, like, I'll have it every time after. Is that true? I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. If we work and are intentional about what goes into your body and how you process and, you know, your movement activity levels during the pregnancy as well – you don't have to have gestational diabetes right. this time around as well. And I've successfully, like, walked people through that. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, awesome. Well, this is a bit of a more niche topic, but I feel like one subtopic I've been seeing in nutrition a lot recently is around microplastics exposure. Do you have any mm general thoughts on that. I know there was also an article that came out about finding microplastics in the placenta um, after birth. So people are clearly ingesting enough plastics that it could potentially even reach the baby in the nine months of pregnancy. Um, Yeah. What have you seen around that? Do you think it's something to be concerned about? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I have not um, done any research around that. Um, But I do know that there are certain things that cross the placenta and go to baby. And so we know that to be true. And so 
why not microplastics? Awesome. Well, yeah, that was a really interesting segment related to nutrition. Um, so something else that you also mentioned you were interested in is sex is involvement in pregnancy and birth as well. Um, so you mentioned oxytocin therapy, um, which I think is a really interesting concept. So yeah, can you explain what is oxytocin therapy? What role does it play within birth, but also outside of birth? Mm-hmm. So oxytocin, I call oxytocin therapy basically the use of that oxytocin, which is an, a hormone that our body produces, um, to help us cope mm-hmm. with things outside of pregnancy. I guess that could look like, you know, you or I having a bad day and like needing to be... <laughs> feel loved and (laughs) feel like some kind of joy. So I Mm -hmm. call oxytocin the love hormone. Mm -hmm. And basically when we feel um, sensations of feeling secure and happy, we release oxytocin. Mm -hmm. Um, In pregnancy specifically, I talk about oxytocin therapy for just like the whole concept of whatever we experience outside baby experiences inside as well. Mm. So if mom or the birthing person is in a car and someone cuts them off in these mean New York streets, (laughs) right? And they're like really upset or they almost get like into an accident maybe. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, oh my goodness, like how could they? Instead of responding that way for too long, because we are humans and we respond to things that happen in our life and that's okay. Um, Acknowledging it is important, but then, like I always tell my clients, but go back to your oxytocin therapy. Mm. Touch your belly, tell baby, like, okay, we just experienced this, but we're okay. Let's go get some ice cream maybe. (laughs) That can be oxytocin therapy because maybe that's what mom needs to feel better. It might be something as simple as like opening your phone and looking at a picture of um, your other children or your partner. Mm. If you like puppy dogs, like, you know, watching a video of some puppies playing around or some kittens running around with each other. Those things can be oxytocin therapy. Um, People always jump to like the sex part, but there's other little things that are also oxytocin therapy that can really like calm and settle and make someone feel secure and safe. Right. And that's really important because what we want to do is definitely reduce cortisol production, um, which is that, you know, fight flight hormone um, transmitter that goes through our body and can cause havoc. (laughs) <laughs> in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so oxytocin therapy like combats the cortisol in that way during the pregnancy. Right. So do you feel like um, – I, I think a lot of pregnancy is about hormone regulation and I feel like that's mm-hmm. why nutrition plays such an essential role. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. do you think other than nutrition, oxytocin is something that people can kind of tap into while they're pregnant and – really be able to help influence their own hormone regulation that way? And do you think it's sort of the most easily manipulated hormone per se? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I have a, (laughs) I usually say mind, body, soul, like they're all connected. And Mm -hmm. so if our mind, we can tap into the power of our mind to help support what our body's needs are, like we're winning. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Yeah. I think it's interesting. I, there's this Grey's Anatomy episode where um, one of the physicians I think has some sort of social disability. um, Mm. And when she's having a panic attack, she likes to be hugged really tightly because it releases oxytocin. Um, So yeah, like I found- Man, you have such a good memory, Catherine, (laughs) because I watch Grey's Anatomy and like, I'm like, I don't for this episode it was um she was one of the cardiologists that was training dr christina yang um and yeah okay, she would like seasons ago yeah many yes ago. Uh-huh. yeah so she she wouldn't even because people her social disability prevented her from liking touch so she would actually wrap her white coat around her really really tightly and it would help release oxytocin yeah. um i think it was autism but i, I forget yeah, but I yeah that. so it was interesting when when you mentioned oxytocin during uh oxytocin therapy during pregnancy mm-hmm. it made me think about 
that episode, but also this article that I found where people are using oxytocin therapy not only to help speed up birth per se, but also to help treat things like autism because it can help autistic kids feel calmer yeah. and sort of reduce their anxiety. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I always – whenever I think about oxytocin, I think about like hugs and just like really tight – uh, embraces mm-hmm. and even like uh, like heavy blankets. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I forget. Oh, the weighted, weighted blankets. blankets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So yeah, thinking about oxytocin therapy for birth. Um, how? Let me see. I forget. Oh yeah. Um, how can sex or nipple stimulation or other oxytocin inducing maneuvers play a role in birth? Yeah. So. A lot of people think that if we have sex, like maybe I'm going to go into labor, you know, before I'm supposed to. And that's actually not typically the case. Unless you are at high risk for preterm labor, most people's body does this really amazing thing where the receptors that need to be filled for your body to be like, okay, contract with oxytocin, they're turned off Mm. until it's time to go. So getting oxytocin therapy, having sex, you know, being around puppies or watching videos or whatever is not going to put you into labor until you're in labor. Mm. When you're in labor, absolutely oxytocin therapy can help with continuing to, you know, have that hormone surge and that hormone in labor will cause you to have contractions and that's what we need to bring a baby earthside um specifically sex so i mean there's levels to it right so let's start with nipple stimulation we use nipple stimulation because um the estrogen that basically is needed to push milk out of the duct responds to oxytocin actually. Mm -hmm. And when your body's like, when the breasts are stimulated to think that it needs to produce milk, um, oxytocin comes first and oxytocin then leads to a contraction. Mm. So So it's the only hormone that pushes forward contractions or one of the main ones. Yeah. Oxytocin. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When labor is happening, Mm -hmm. not prior to. Um, And so we can do nipple stimulation for many. It does work pretty well. You can do it by hand yourself, um, kind of like what it would look like if you were expressing milk. Or you can have a partner use their tongue or their mouth, or you can use a breast pump to do Mm -hmm. nipple stimulation. I wouldn't recommend doing nipple stimulation without the guidance of a provider or a birth worker that can guide you because you can overstimulate and cause contractions to come back to back to back, which is not good for you or baby. So it does have to be monitored and possibly titrated, like, but it is something that we do use for bringing on labor or helping it to come closer, contractions to come closer together. Hmm. Then there's the sex thing. And sex can do, it does two things. Sex can bring on the oxytocin, right? Orgasm can bring on oxytocin and help the body relax as well as bring on those contractions that we need. Um, The other thing that sex does is it can provide, and this would be sex with a male partner um, using semen, that semen will actually go up and by the cervix and the prostaglandins from the semen will actually soften that cervix and help your contractions be more efficient. Mm. So actually in hospital spaces where they're doing an induction, a lot of hospitals will start the induction with something called cervidil. Um, or some people have heard Cytotec, but Cervidil is the one specifically that I'm talking about. Cervidil is like an insert that we put up uh, right by the cervix. And what's inside of Cervidil is semen from a horse. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. So we can get like human semen from our partner to do the same thing. Why not? Yeah. And like I said, the goal of that semen is those prostaglandins soften up the cervix. So Mm -hmm. we want your cervix to be soft like your lips. Usually like it'll start out hard like the nose. And then when we're like 
at a good place for labor to start, we want it to be soft like our lips. And right. so if we've got contractions working on a hard cervix, they don't work as well to mm. open the space and, you know, um, give us good dilation. But if it's soft, then the contractions will work efficiently. Okay. So that's the other thing that sex does for us in labor. Yeah, interesting. So mm -hmm. if sex can help with labor, if you're a single parent or a gay parent as mm -hmm. well, how do you recommend using sex or even like masturbation mm -hmm. as a coping mechanism for birth? Yeah. So you won't get the semen part, but you definitely can get the orgasm. And the mm -hmm. orgasm does a great job in also softening up the cervix mm -hmm. and just like release of tension all over the body is super, super helpful for a labor process, whether it's early on or at the very end or in the middle. Um, I always tell my clients, like, imagine that your body is all connected and that your uterus is kind of like the shape of a bottle. And at the bottom of the bottle is the neck and mm -hmm. that's the cervix. And so everything actually needs to be soft in order for baby to make their way down. If we're tense, we kind of hold things back. And so an orgasm does wonders for people that are like experiencing lots of tension or like emotional about something and needing a release in order to let the labor go forward. Right. Um, so if you're a single parent, would you recommend masturbating in labor? Yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So thinking about preparing for birth in general, how can you prevent tearing during birth and could sex play a role? For instance, um, if you're doing massages or anything like that, I know a lot of people recommend warm towels and just opening up that area, um, especially in the second stage of labor. So yeah, do you think that that kind of massage could potentially be sexy in a way and help prevent tearing or what are your tips? <laughs> So I don't recommend jumping into perineal massage during labor. If you're going to do perineal massage, then you should be doing it prenatally mm -hmm. um, because it can be not comfortable. Mm. Um, it's kind of something that you build up. So at first, excuse me, when you're doing perineal massage, you're first kind of like um, applying pressure, so to speak, to the corners of the vaginal opening. So you're putting pressure for a couple of seconds on one corner, then you move to the next corner, next spot for like, I say like 10 seconds, you just hold. Mm -hmm. It's not an actual fluid massage at I first see. because it can be painful. It's like these are muscles yeah. that have never had that weight and pressure on it. So like with sex, um, if we're talking about sex with, you know, a male and a female, that is the penis penetration doesn't put weight on the perineum it right. goes further into the canal and you know that's a whole different kind of sensation the pressure on the perineum only comes from like specific application mm -hmm. so i wouldn't say that sex will help with the perineal <laughs> massage in the way that we typically tell one to do it yeah but, I mean, you know, maybe it does help keep <laughs> things loose down there if you're regularly having sex. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, in terms of tearing, though, specifically, I would say, yes, you can do perineal massages. I typically will say start them around 37 weeks. Don't do them, like, from the beginning of time until – because, again, they're not really comfortable and you don't have to be doing them for – five to 10 weeks straight, like right. a couple weeks of doing it consistently or even 10 days of doing it consistently goes a, a, a decent way. Um, the other thing is when you are in your pushing period, pushing phase of labor, um, yes, warm cloths help. If your provider isn't using a warm cloth at the perineum or you're not in a water birth situation, you can maybe request, like, can you apply some pressure with a warm cloth? Is there any... I mean, in the hospital spaces, there is a sink and there are, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, things that they can they can use to uh, put warmth on that that area. Um, some people will say like, oh, no, I don't want like my provider to be down there. But if so, if you want a hands off approach, make sure that you are listening to your provider so that when 
the baby's head is crowning. You're not like doing a big push and they're just like flying through your perineal space because that yeah. will lead to a tear. So make sure that you're tuning into your provider, not all of the 50 other voices around you. Like everyone's like, push, 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 when really you need to <laughs> pause, pause, pause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes I've seen that happen. Just wait and listen. Take your time. Breathe your baby down. Let your baby's head stretch the tissue slowly. So even though in that time of pushing, you feel this thing called that ejection reflex where you're like, I got to get this out. I got to get it out. Like breathing baby down and remembering that baby is going to give you a nice, slow stretch. And that slow stretch is going to help prevent prevent tearing and then listening to your provider. The other thing is nutrition again. Um Making sure that you have good, strong, healthy tissue by way of vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin E. Mm. These things are supportive of strong tissue. If we have poorly perfused tissue or tissue that's what we call friable, like it's just like it will melt away basically at with the touch or with extra pressure, right. then you're going to tear. But if you're eating well and you're getting those those things into your body, then you are really, really going a long way with decreasing the risk of tear. Sometimes we can't avoid it. Sometimes babies come with their little hands next to their (laughs) head and they're like, and then, you know, you're like, kid, why'd you do that to me? (laughs) Like, wasn't me. That was you. But if you, you know, do all the things to avoid, then you're, you're at a good place. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think a lot of people, when they think about sex after birth, they think about pelvic floor therapy. So what are the signs that you might need pelvic floor therapy? And do you think sex actually does play a role in that? Does sex play a role in needing pelvic floor therapy, like prenatally? Um, or I guess like, yeah, postpartum. Um, I mean, I think that definitely if one begins having sex and you're Feeling a lot of discomfort with sex, we call it dyspareunia is the medical term, um, pain with sex, that's a sign that you need an assessment for mm-hmm. sure. Um, if you're for feeling, pelvic floor therapy. For pelvic floor therapy, right? If you're feeling like um, you're, you know, not holding as well or you're not, it just doesn't feel as pleasurable, then that's a sign. Mm-hmm. Um Incontinence. Incontinence is another sign for sure. That's hopefully with, without sex. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, incontinence would be a sign. A weak abdomen. So mm. we call it a diastasis recti. Separation of the abdominal muscles is separation of the abdominal muscles, but also is connected to your pelvic floor strength. Mm. So seeing a pelvic floor um, physical therapist for both will be really, really necessary and helpful. Um, But that's one sign. You just feel like everything is just all loose in there. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that's how it's going to feel at first. But if that feeling continues for, you know, six weeks and on, then there's something that's not, you know, well. Constipation is also a sign of Mm – constipation. And you know you're eating well. You know you're drinking lots of water because that's a – a problem in postpartum is like we don't get hydrated enough Mm. but if you know you're doing all the other things well and you're still having constipation that's a sign that your pelvic floor there's some kind of misalignment there okay so i mean i really do recommend pelvic floor therapy regardless of whether or not you're feeling things like just go get an assessment and some additional support to get things toned up for a good outcome for like the rest of your whatever that looks like for you if it's another baby or if it's just like being a woman and not having to you know run to the bathroom after a (laughs) sneeze or a cough down the you know avoiding prolapse and things like that Mm -hmm. I just recommend it for for everyone postpartum yeah yeah it's interesting like most of my friends are in their early 20s um I'm 24 but like probably half my friends have done pelvic floor therapy at some point Mm -hmm. so I think it's um not even a postpartum thing to need pelvic floor therapy and it should just be like normalized yeah as part of like general exercise and wellness I think that's great so yeah my last question for you is what is your number one tip for preparing for sex after birth I know that tends to be Mm -hmm something people feel wary about or have anxiety over 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I always say listening to your body is important and not feel guilty. Having conversations with your partner and with yourself um, that it's okay not to be ready right away. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't feel ready right away, doing small things to kind of test the waters for yourself, which means maybe that's like just cuddling first and then maybe just kissing and then maybe touch Mm -hmm. without penetration and then, you know, graduations Um, or just even spending time together one-on-one, making separate time for each other is important sometimes for people. Um, And then there's some people that are like, Week four, I'm ready to go. And their partner's like, oh, my God, are you sure? Which is usually, you know, not the normal thing. They're like, no, you got to get checked out by your provider first. But um, in regards to that, once the bleeding has stopped from the uterus, once we're not seeing bleeding anymore, that means the womb is closed up Mm -hmm. and you are safe to really probably have sex by then. As long as you haven't had any tears that needs, you know, some people have no tears during their process of birth. And then once the womb is closed up, you can begin to have sex again if you feel comfortable. Right. Or you can just wait for your provider to give you the thumbs up, but most likely it'll be fine. Mm. And if you don't feel ready, then be gracious to yourself and take little steps. Maybe it's even just like focusing on you alone, like self-pleasure first for a little bit. And then you might feel ready to be intimate with your partner. Right. So how soon should you prepare to have sex after birth? Or how soon can you have sex after birth? Well, like I said, once the womb's closed up, meaning the blood has stopped, which ideally, (laughs) you know, at least by three weeks, some people may start having sex as soon. Um, But a lot of people are like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, So, okay, that's it's it's individual. Um, but let's say sometime between four to six weeks after pregnancy, usually people go with the six week mark because that's when they see their provider and the provider yeah. is like, yeah, everything is clear. Everything's good. Especially if you have had a tear, you want to make sure that it's well healed before introducing anything, any penetration or anything like that. But, um, usually people go with the six week mark and then af- anything after that is really based on you emotionally being ready. Yeah. Is there any time during pregnancy that you shouldn't shave, like leading up to birth or after birth even? Shaving is fine. Um, You do need to make sure you do it in the most, um, not sterile, but clean way because you can get like folliculitis from Mm. um, razors that are not clean or have like rust in them or something like that. Right. And that's not safe, but... With clean razors, you can shave. You can well, people wax right up until like their due date. I don't know how. <laughs> Wouldn't be me, but like yeah, you can wax and shave right up until yeah, but not laser. No laser. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, this was a super insightful conversation. I'm really, really grateful for you taking the time to chat with us today um, about nutrition and sex. So mm. yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> cool.